So we are uh, in this series right now that we're doing, uh, and we're talking through some of Jesus's parables and teachings. And really what we're talking about, the main meta-narrative, if you will, the big idea here in the series is that there are two kingdoms that you live in if you're a Christian, right? On the one hand, there is the kingdom that is just around, and, and the Bible describes it as the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of this world is perishing away, will not last forever. It has a season, it's here, and then it's gone. But as Christians, we want to invest in things long-term, our happiness long-term, our blessing long-term, our relationship with God long-term. We don't want to just have a short-term blessing. So we've committed ourselves not to just live in this world, but to see ourselves as also belonging to another kingdom as described in the scriptures, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that while we live in both of these things, we have an opportunity, and this is our goal in this series, is to remind you as a Christian that there is no description of who you are that should precede the, the, the idea that you are a follower of Jesus first. You are first and foremost a follower of Jesus. And, and, and the reality behind that is that for many of us, we choose all kinds of other identities first. I do this all the time. Like when I meet somebody, it's just kind of my go-to. It's, it's a way for me to like know what kind of person I'm talking to, what are they interested in? But I'll always ask the question, like, what do you guys do? Like, what do you do for a living, right? But, but behind that question can be the misleading idea that we are just what we do, that we're the sum total of our productivity, that we're just basically producers, right? But, but as Christians, we're first and foremost followers of Jesus, and then we're whatever we are. We're followers of Jesus and then a lawyer. We're followers of Jesus and a mom. We're followers in Jesus, of Jesus and, and we're teachers. We're followers of Jesus first. And that has such an impact, and that's the reason why Jesus is teaching these parables to show what the kingdom of God is like, because it is different than the kingdom of men, the kingdom of this world. And so while we are citizens of both of those things, we first follow Jesus. And when you get that prioritization right, everything else begins to fall in place in your life. In fact, the subject that we're dealing with today is, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? So we're going to read these verses. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 10 today. And uh, as we do that, we're going to like look at, uh, we're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to walk back through it carefully. Here we go. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into an eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. So let's go back in verse one. There's some intense language here, and I'm gonna describe why Jesus uses such language. Matthew chapter 18, verse one starts like this. At that time, the disciples came. At what time? Well, so what's happening is we're kind of entering into something mid-story. 
In Matthew here, he doesn't describe what precedes this, but some of the other gospels do. You need to think of like gospels or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have to think about this as four different camera angles, four different observations of a singular event, and that is the life and times of Jesus. And so while Matthew doesn't mention it, the other gospels do, and here's what they mention. So the disciples are following, trailing hard after Jesus. He's walking in a direction, and they're asking themselves the question, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Like, which one of us is going to be the most mighty, the best, the, the top of the food chain? Which one of us is the alpha? That's what they're asking. Like, which one of us is going to be there? And so I think at first glance, we might look at that and we think to ourselves, because maybe we know a little bit of the story, we might think to ourselves, well, these are just terrible guys. Like, they're vying for positions, jockeying for prestige. What you need to know, though, is that that's not necessarily the case. What's happening right here is, yes, they're jockeying for positions and they're looking for prestige. They want attaboys. They want to be at the top of the food chain. But why do they want that? And I think it's important for us to recognize that, that while they have these desires, um, we're not always really in touch with what our truest desires are. So, for example, last week, I, used, um, I talked about this idea that if you were to strip away all the bad things in the world and you were to go back to the moment of creation where God basically creates all all that is, the entire universe. The scriptures teach us that God spoke and in the very power of his words created reality. Everything that exists, the whole universe, and one bam, all of a sudden it comes, right? And so in that moment, when God creates everything that he created, he takes a step back from it. He looks at it and he says, wow, this is good. Like it functions exactly the way that it's supposed to. It's wonderful. And so because of that, you and I could say, and you and I are part of creation, created from the dust of the ground, the Bible says. And so when God creates us, he looks at us and he's like, they're good, they're wonderful. But if you grew up in the church for a long time, you might have been like kind of told along the way that the world's broken, everything's messed up, and so you're not good anymore. There's some truth to that, but it's a little bit twisted, right? Because it gets to be very pessimistic, I think, for some of you. But here's, here's what happened. While we are created good, there is this catch to it. And the catch is that somewhere along the way, the good that God created both outside of us in the universe and the world and also inside of us with our hearts and the way that we think, they were vandalized by sin. And because God's world was vandalized, it was, it was destroyed, it was twisted, it was distorted, sometimes we don't know what our true desires are. So for some of us that are looking for praise, for some of us that are looking for like position, jockeying to be important, to be the greatest, What's really happening there sometimes is not that you really want to be the greatest, but what you want is purpose, significance, and to know that you matter. That's what's really happening. Because none of us just want to be, you know, applauded to all the time. What we want is to know that we matter, that we make a difference, that we have some kind of purpose in life. And so at that time, the Jesus, the, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. They asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you might look at them and go, well, gosh, man, these guys, they're just trying to jockey for power and position. But what they really want is they want to matter. Jesus continues with his analogy. And he does something really strange. He's trying to, now he's going to answer the question, who's the greatest? And instead of pointing to one of them, because Jesus definitely had a hierarchy with the disciples. It was was Peter, James, and John. These three guys were definitely favored above all the others. In fact, in the moment, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, in the moment when he actually goes to be with his father, he only invites Peter, James, and John to, to be there. The rest of the disciples are not invited to that moment. Why? Because there's a hierarchy. And maybe some of these guys felt a little insecure. Like, man, why did these guys get all the praise and attention? That's why they're asking these questions. So Jesus does something weird in verse two. He says this. He called a little child to them 
and placed the child among them. So, so now we've moved from one place to another. Now he's at Peter's house. And most likely, scholars believe that one of these children were one of Peter's children. Jesus had no children. Um, Paul had no children. But Peter had a wife and children. So he grabs maybe one of Peter's children, puts it in front of all of them and says this, truly I tell you guys, disciples, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is a big if, like this is a big deal. He's like, I want you to change. So the first thing that we see is that the disciples in the position that they're in right now, where they are in their spiritual growth, he's like, you're not done. I'm still building you. I'm still changing you. There's more room to grow. You have to change. This is why like one of our house rules at Grace is constant innovation. We believe that you have to continue to follow the gospel the way that it's always been taught, but you have to teach it in different ways. We have to be changing. God is always making us more than what we were. But one of the main reasons why he says they have to change is because the expectations that the disciples had, as well as everyone that was looking for Jesus or the Messiah to come, they expected two things from him. Number one, he was either going to be a political leader, a politician, who would come and basically free Israel, because Israel was kind of like a, they had free movement and everything, but they were kind of like slaves in the Roman Empire. So they could do their thing, but they were still under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so they were looking for a Messiah, a rescuer, to come and free them. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. Maybe a politician, or maybe he would be a general. And as a general, he would lead a revolt against Rome. They would create their own nation. They'd be their own thing. Here's the point. Everyone looking for the Messiah thought that Jesus would solve some problem that they had in this life right here and right now. And he wanted to make them free. He wanted to make them hopeful. He wanted to bring um, good to their life. But what he was doing was saying, I'm gonna spiritually free you from things so that no matter how you walk in the kingdom of God, that whatever, whether something's good or something's bad, you'll be so connected to me, you'll be so connected to me that these other things will not matter nearly as much to you. And so one of the things he says, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like these little children, he's basically saying, guys, stop jockeying for power because this world is not where you're gonna gain power. Some of these guys expected that when Jesus took power, that they would make, maybe they would get a governorship or maybe they would be a prefect because you know what? Governors have power. They have the authority to do, put their thumb on people. They can manipulate. They have money. They have power. They can do whatever they want. They were powerful. And that seemed, even to the disciples, like that was the good life. And Jesus is going, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, that is not the good life. I will take good, not just and change your circumstances, but I will place it deep inside of your heart so that you become a different person. So he brings, Jesus continues with this analogy. He called the little child, placed the child among them. He said, truly, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So um, many of you know that at Tennis Church, that I can't write my messages, my weekend messages. I can't write my sermons, my messages here at the church. If I sit in my office, it's just a stream of knock, 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 knock. What do you think about this? Knock, knock, knock. What do you, and that's fine. That's great. I love, my, I love the staff. They're amazing, but I get nothing done here, okay? So I will actually go. I go to the Alfond Inn in Winter Park. How many have been there before? Raise your hands. All right, all right excellent. If you haven't, it's just a really pretty, basically like a hotel. They've got like a bar area and a restaurant, and I go sit right over in that area, and I just sit there for hours writing my message. But here's what you need to know. You need to know I've been there since the first week the Alphonse opened. So I have tenure there that's longer than any manager that's been there. So literally when new staff come, I'm like, hey, let me welcome you to the Alphonse. I'm so glad you're here. You know, and, and, it, and they're always confused by it. And then someone else goes, that guy's been here forever. But, but what's happened is 
as time has gone on and I've gotten to know all the staff of the Alphon, now I have them stop by all the time. So I'm getting interrupted anyway, right? So, but what happens is I've told the Lord when, I, when that first started happening, God, I'm just gonna trust that every single time someone comes up and wants to talk to me in that situation, I'm just gonna trust that that's a divine moment and it's gonna be a ministry moment for me to speak into a person's life. And God has given me so many opportunities, so many amazing things. I have, I've counseled people and I wanna tell you about a guy named Carlos. That's not his real name. But Carlos uh, came Thursday and he sat down next to me, right? And he doesn't always do that, but I've been praying for him for four years. And I've talked to his wife about their marriage and I've talked to him about their marriage. And we just, we, I just, I'm trying to care and love on these folks. And so he sits down and he just bursts into tears. And I'm thinking to myself, oh no, the marriage is finally cracked. Things are falling apart. They're headed for divorce. It's not gonna be good. And he's just crying and crying and crying. I mean, like not a little, little bit, but like ugly cry. You know, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like big crying. And managers are walking by and everyone's walking by. And I'm like, just keep walking, keep walking, you know? And it's, and it's, and it's, a, it's an amazing moment because he says, I've been wanting to tell you this for a while. And I've just been like, like just, you know, just been so keyed up on the inside. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. And he said, he said, Pastor Mike, I woke up in the middle of December of last year. And he said, I woke up in the morning and all I can tell you is that I was a completely changed person. And I said, I don't know, what do you mean? And he said, he said, all I can say is the Holy Spirit changed me in a moment. And he's like, 30 years ago, I decided I would never follow God. I just decided in my heart, I'm never gonna do it. And he said, when I woke up that morning, I knew that I had become a follower of Jesus. And it was just, and he said, I spent the next two days just mourning over all the lost time and, and all of the things, all of my sin. And I was like, that's amazing, man. It was just this incredible... Listen, that's exactly how I changed as well. 30-something years ago, I had a moment with God. And it was the day before I was doing wicked and terrible things. And then I had this one moment in time where I heard God say to me just one thing. And when I say say to me, I don't mean like just, you know, like Christians normally like in your, your head. I mean like in some strange way that I can't fully comprehend. He just told me the one thing that I needed to hear more than anything else in the whole world with a family that had fallen apart and a life that was insecure he said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I had never read the Bible before that. And I walked back into the party that I was at and I said, hey guys, I think I just became a Christian. And everyone was like, what? You know, and, uh, and for 30 years it had stuck. And he said, I will never, ever, ever, ever go back to the old life that I had. Jesus brings the disciples to this room in Peter's house. He brings Peter's child out and he says, unless you become like this child, you're not gonna see the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? That we become immature and weak? No, what he's saying is the children in the Roman Empire and in Mosaic law had no standing. They, they, were, they, they, didn't, have, they didn't have any rights or any rules. Or not, they didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So, so the most vulnerable person in the Jewish world in the Roman Empire was a child. He's like, unless you become vulnerable like a child, unless you become dependent like a child, you'll not see the kingdom of God. And what he's saying basically there is that we trust the Father in such a way that my whole life and its outcomes depend upon him and not just me. Up on the screen, to be great in the kingdom of God, we choose vulnerability not self-protection. Let's talk about that. Because for some of us, we, 
And this just, this just happens. It's, a, it's the way that many of you, just like me, became a follower of Jesus. If you didn't grow up in the church like I didn't grow up in the church, sometimes what it takes is something shaking your life. And that's what happened to me. It was my suffering. It was the, it was the hardships. It was the difficulties. It was all of my life. And, and then all of a sudden, something changes, right? That's what happened. I listened to my suffering and God spoke. But for some of you, when the suffering came, you chose a different path. And you know this deep in your heart. You know why? Because some of you are so radically successful. You're done. I mean, you've got your number. You're like, I'm good. I'm just living life kind of fun right now. That's what I'm doing. You're successful. You're outwardly. Like when people look at you, they praise you for your excellence, your physical excellence, your business excellence, the neighborhood that you live in. Some of you are just those people. And, and everyone's like, no, that's what I aspire to be. That's great. But you know, just like a lot of people who arrived at success, you arrived at success and you thought to yourself, is this it? You know what the number one problem with super successful people is in their hearts? It's one thing. It's called the imposter syndrome. And you know what's going on like with that? Here's, here's what's going on. You look at your life. You're, you were there. You did it. You worked the 16-hour days. You suffered. You went through all the hardship. You did everything. But here's why it feels weird to you. It feels weird because somewhere along the way, you built what you built as a way of protecting yourself, not being vulnerable. When hardship hits you, you said, I'm never gonna do that again. For some of you, it was a relationship. And so you were in a relationship and that relationship just collided with a wall and you thought to yourself, never again, never again will I let a woman get inside my heart in such a way where I become vulnerable to her and you started pretending. Or you did this with a guy and you started pretending. You started saying, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, be, I'm gonna be, take care of myself. I'm gonna cover my heart and then you did all these amazing things to prove to the outside world that you were valuable. You are valuable. You are worthwhile, but not because you did great things, but because our Father greatly loves you. And the reason why you walk around with a kind of imposter syndrome, you think to yourself, wow, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. I got everything I wanted and it didn't work. Why? Because you built it on the foundation of running away from God or running away from your pain. We need the courage to look at the pain, the courage to say, this pain leads me to somewhere else. And some of you chose the opposite path. You decided, I will choose vulnerability and trust I'll be vulnerable with someone even when they hurt me. I will be vulnerable. And, and, and we've said this before, guys. Listen, everyone needs to be vulnerable with someone, but no one needs to be vulnerable with everyone. Everyone needs to be vulnerable with someone, but no one needs to be vulnerable with everyone. Why? Because not everyone is worthy of your vulnerability. It's important for you to let the right people speak into your life. Jesus continues in verse four. He says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position, look at this, the low position is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the low position basically is a position of vulnerability, not puffing out our chest to God and saying, I'm the man, I'm the alpha, I'm the, I'm the guy. No, what we do is we walk and say, God, I am nothing compared to you. Your greatness is superior, your worth is superior, your value is superior, all of that's superior to me. Thank you that you love me. Our humility goes before us in the kingdom of God. It's a prime difference between the world. The world puffs its chest out and says, if you hit me, I'll hit you back harder. Jesus turned back around and said, turn the other cheek. And some of you think that's weakness. It's not. You know how much stronger it is to get slapped and then say, do it again. It takes a strong woman, a strong man, 
to be that person. He goes on, we have to listen to our pain. Jesus says to his disciples, be vulnerable, trust like this little child has to trust his parents. Verse five, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So now he turns his attention not to the individual, but to the church as a whole. And he says, and whoever uh, welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I want you to think about this for a second. Grace has between her campuses right now, the church has 6,000 adults. And then on top of that, 30% more children, which is that's 7,800 people that are, that are involved at Grace Church at this point, okay? I mean, amazing. But listen to this. So when it says whoever welcomes a, such a child, it doesn't mean a child like a, like a child. The child is just a metaphor. So anyone, whoever welcomes such a person taking their first steps toward Christ in my name welcomes me. Now, I want you to imagine right now, we build this big church. We have all this great music, this incredible preacher, we have all of this stuff going on. We have all this stuff going on, right? All this good stuff, right? And if we don't pay attention to those who are taking their first steps toward Christ, you know, I have people all the time uh, say, Pastor Mike, thank you for f- focusing so much on the Bible because there's not a lot of pastors that are doing that. And that's a shame. But let me also say, every once in a while when someone says that, there is a little bit of this weird kind of pride that's behind it. And the idea basically is, I'm way beyond the basics of the Christian faith. I'm a deep Christian. I'm a Christian who is profound. (laughs) If your spiritual life has led you to be so deep that you don't value people taking their first steps toward Christ, you're not a place that welcomes Jesus. Imagine we build a church of thousands and thousands and thousands of people and God himself does not feel welcome there. I mean, the Bible says that that is hay and straw. On the day of judgment, it'll all be burned up. I don't wanna invest my entire life in something that we're building and doing and all of this stuff that we're doing right now, it's good stuff, guys. But if we don't focus on those who are far from God, Jesus will not feel welcome in our church. It doesn't matter how religious we are. If we don't care about people, he doesn't feel welcome. And if we aren't people who care about people, we're not kingdom people. We have to be kingdom people. And so he goes on to some really striking language right here. He says, Verse, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, those who are taking their first steps toward Christ to stumble, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and for them to be dropped in the sea. Why such like exaggerated language? So, so imagine if you will, there's an oxen and he's chained and there is this big circle, it's concrete, it's about this high, big circle. Inside the circle, there's another circle and inside the inner circle and the outer circle, there's a big rock, a stone, and it's round. And it just, and what's happening is the ox is simply going around all day long, right? And he's pulling the stone and the stone is going around and around. It's called the threshing floor. And what's happening right there is the stone is crushing all the wheat or corn that they're putting down there so they can mill it and use it for cooking, right? And so he's basically, but this stone right here would have been probably somewhere around five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds. So he's basically saying, you know what, it would be better for you as a Christian that if I just put a chain around you, chuck that stone into the, into, the, into the ocean and you were drowned with it. Why? Because when we are not welcoming people who are taking their first step toward Christ, 
It's as if we've become absolutely worthless. That our lives have been forfeited. Why? Because for some Christians, they become so deep that they forgot what really matters. They become useless. And, and, and it's fascinating because it happens all the time. I, I, I was at uh, the RDV Sportsplex on uh, Saturday morning. Sorry, Genesis Health Club uh, at, uh, on Saturday. And uh, I just went over there to swim and I was changing and uh, there was this Christian guy. I'm assuming he's a Christian. He's a Christian guy who was talking really loud on his phone. Now, for some reason, the whole thing was filled with, with people, okay? And so... So he's talking and he's expositing Matthew 18. He's really frustrated with the person he's talking to on the other side. Matthew 18 has this conflict resolution thing. It's basically like some good wisdom. When you have a conflict with someone as, as a Christian, you go to them first directly, privately and discreetly, right? Then number two, if that doesn't work, uh, you, you bring uh, another person with you to say, this is really important. I need you to know, we think that this is a terrible road that you're on. And then number three, uh, he's, that you bring them before the elders of the church and say, man, we need to really involve some people that are you know, beyond our circle of influence. Let's, let's have this conversation now. None of the things that he said were wrong, but he was yelling it at the, at the top of his lungs, right? It wasn't the wrong thing he was saying. It was the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong volume. And so he's like, you gotta go to him, man. You gotta tell him his sin. If you don't tell him his sin, he's gonna go to hell and blah, blah, blah. It's not loving. And everyone around me, every, like all the guys are like, what the heck is happening? Like, and I'm like, I don't know, man, Christians. Like, strange. You never know what they're gonna do. Really weird. You know, and, and it was just like, it was like this moment where I thought, here's a guy who's like totally unaware of how he's coming across to all kinds of people that have no idea about faith in God. This is why I tell you guys periodically, every once in a while, we got Easter coming up. We will never do something on the stage that will embarrass you when you leverage your relationship with somebody else to invite them to come. I know that you put your reputation on the line. I know some of you have done that before, and your tendency right now is to be self-protective. Like, I'm just gonna watch over me right now because I did that before, and then my pastor screwed up. I did that before, and the church fell apart. There are no promises to those things. What we're doing is we're walking faithfully, and what we're doing is trusting Jesus with the church. Guys, listen. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a huge opportunity on Easter to be able to help people take their first step toward Christ. But none of that happens because I'm gonna come with my A game. I'm gonna bring a fire sermon, okay? I'll tell you right, I'm just, I know the things that I can do and the Lord has let me, be, I mean, <laughs> it's what I do, I like it. Right? So, so I'm gonna do my part, but, but your part is to bring folks that need to hear Jesus especially those folks that are like, you know, because some of you are in the room, you're, you're exactly that target audience that I'm talking about. And the reason why we're talking about you right now is because we want you to know Jesus because we believe that's the more beautiful story for your life. To be accepted unconditionally and to have somebody who will forgive your sin is just an amazing, incredible thing. Woe to the world because of the... So, so, so let, me, let, me, let me jump in here, right? Verse seven. Now he changes the camera angle again, Right? And in verse seven, it's no longer about believers. It becomes about the world. It's not about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world now. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. All right, so look at Jesus using woe right here and woe right here, these two words, right? What does that mean? That's not language that we use in today's language. Well, it's not even language that they used in Jesus's day. Jesus is borrowing some language from the Old Testament. And whenever God would say woe about something, it was usually because 
God was about to bring judgment on a group of people. Now, look, that's some of you right now, you go, oh, I knew, too good to be, man, I knew it. Like good worship, guy was funny. Now we're gonna talk about judgment. Let me talk to you about why God does talk about this, why he brings judgment sometimes. Last week, we described this whole thing about the world being good and beautiful, right? But the world's now been vandalized. Every so often, somebody takes it upon themselves to just vandalize the world in a very profound way. And we can look back through history and see people like this. We can see that like Adolf Hitler was a person like this who destroyed six million people and destroyed them. And so judgment is a thing that happens when God comes, not because he desires to do harm. Judgment is a way that we reconcile the world that is broken and been marred by us. God comes in, he says, I'm gonna do a hard thing to you so that you turn back around and you remember the right direction. You go, well, that just doesn't, that's not, that doesn't seem right to me. Guys, that's the entire system of justice in every country, in every part of the planet. Sometimes when somebody acts and behaves in a very inappropriate way, we have to lock them away and say, you can no longer play with everyone else. Why? Because you vandalize the world in a terrible way. And if that were not the case, that that was not a thing, then, 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 then unrighteousness would run and rule the world. But so what God does is sometimes he fixes things. He makes them right. So judgment to the world because of things that uh, cause people to stumble. In other words, like vandalizing my world. These are people who are pulling other people away from God. Such things must come. And it doesn't mean that they must come because I'm gonna bring them to you. He means this, that because the world has been vandalized, all of you, all of us will suffer and sometimes the suffering has nothing to do with you at all. You don't always need to personalize every bit of suffering. If you've made bad choices and you know you made bad choices, then maybe that's on you. But sometimes hard things come into our lives because the world is broken by sin, not because you're personally responsible for everything in the world. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. But if you're a person who commits their life to the destruction of God's great creation, then eventually God will destroy back. And that is to set things right, not because he desires to destroy anyone. In fact, the Bible's very clear about that. He says, I wish that none would perish, but that all would repent and turn to me. So they're, 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 the, heart, the father's heart is always turned back around but you know, one of the hardest things to do as a parent sometimes is to allow your kid to go down a direction that is difficult and, you, and instead of uh, solving the problem for them, you let them experience the consequences. And you know what happens when that happens? People often learn from that moment right there. They change, they move in a different direction. They go, this is painful. Maybe I won't do that same thing. I won't make that mistake again. But as a parent, that is just terribly difficult sometimes because why? because you love your kids. And so does the father. He loves you desperately. So in verse eight, he uses a little bit of exaggeration here. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter eternal life, maimed and crippled, than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. What's he describing right now? He's basically saying again here that not that, you know, if you have a problem, just cut off your hand, although some have done that in the past. But what he's really doing right now is he's using hyperbolic language. He's basically saying, listen, it's more important for you to value the kingdom of God and how you live in this world than it is for you to live in this world deformed by the world. Because eventually you may not see heaven if you do that. But instead, focus on eternal life and not just this life. Verse nine, and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. So there's a story. I told you just a second ago uh, that John and James and Peter are Jesus's favorites. And it's pretty clear to the other disciples as well. So one day, um, they're all debating this issue of who's the greatest. We've already discovered that the greatest is somebody who values other people, that values uh, people who are far from God, that doesn't just make themselves irrelevant by their self-importance. We've talked about the fact that people are vulnerable, are, are more likely to grow spiritually versus those who just adopt a, a shell of self-protection. So now the disciples are debating this issue. Well, one of their mothers obviously is listening. And uh, so this is James and John's mom. And she decides she's gonna jump over the disciples and she's gonna have a direct conversation with Jesus. She's just such a mom. And uh, she goes to Jesus and she's like, hey, Jesus, um, do you think that my boys, James and John, could sit on your right and left in the kingdom of heaven on you know, the thrones up, up there somewhere? You think they could do that? She doesn't ask for herself. She asks for them. Why? Because that's her boys and she wants the best for them. But this ticks off the disciples to no end because they're trying to be classy about the whole thing. They're not trying to talk to Jesus directly about it. They're just trying to like infer like which one of us is gonna be the greatest. But mom just jumps over everyone in the debate and then goes and talks to him. Now the disciples get super angry. They get super bad. They're like, James, John, what's up with your mom? You know, like, what are you doing? Like, and James and John, they didn't know anything about it. So they're like, mom, what did you do? We're apostles. We're gonna lead the church. Everyone through history will follow us, mom. So, so here's, what, here's what happens next. They all come to Jesus because they're all just flabbergasted. Matthew 20, 25. Jesus called them together. I said, all right, guys, come on. Let's, let's talk about this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. So what's happening right here? He's like, guys, you have to stop thinking about acquiring power. The kingdom of God is not about acquiring power. The kingdom of God is about servanthood. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, unbelievers, lord it over them. What does that mean? Put their thumb on people. They exercise power. They exercise authority. Because if I'm governor, I can tell you what to do. Right? Rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials, they exercise authority over them. They do whatever they want, in other words. And he's saying, this is not us. In the next verse, he says that. Verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. This is such a contrary uh, vision of the good life in the first century, and it's a contrary vision of the good life in this life. Listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be important, but recognize your desire for importance really is a desire for significance. It's that you matter to someone somewhere. And he's saying, this is how you matter to someone, that whoever wants to become great, don't push down greatness in your life, that's not a thing. Don't push down greatness in your life. Be as great as God will allow you to be. Become great, but in order, in order to become great, you must be a servant to everyone else. Here's what that means. That because I'm a follower of Jesus and because I'm part of a kingdom that's separate from the world, I consider myself first a Christian. So when I go in a business dealing with someone as a, as a business uh, woman or a business guy, when you go into a business situation, your primary goal is not the maximization of profit. Is there anything wrong with profit? Nothing wrong. Actually, guys, I pray all the time that you are financially stable and have abundantly more than you need. I pray that all the time for you. Okay? I pray that you're generous. I pray that you are people who demonstrate their faith with their finances. All the time I pray for that for you guys. But listen, 
listen, listen. When you go into a business meeting, you don't go in first and you say, well, this is just business. You know, you know who says that, right? It's just business. It's someone who's just screwed over someone else. Hey man, it's not personal, it's just business. Like that, like that, like gets you out of it somehow? Like you can become total garbage as a person and then you go, I got an out. It's just business, right? It doesn't work that way. Why? Because as a follower of Jesus, you are first and foremost a Christian before you're a business person. And so your job is to have integrity in that situation. Your job is to think about how that person can take their next step toward Christ. And if as, as an encounter with you in business, if they walk away and they go, I'll never do business with that person again. He lacks integrity, she lacks integrity. Then that will also spill over to your witness uh, with Jesus. We are Christians first above everything. Prophet, man, I hope you prop. I hope you do really well, I really do. But you can also do really, really well and also be a follower of Jesus. We are Christian doctors, we are Christian mothers, we are Christian lawyers, we are Christian teachers, we are Christian architects, we are Christian first, Christian first, Christian first. The whole thing ends like this. Verse 27, and whoever wants to be first, if you wanna be the greatest, you have to be the slave. This word slave right here is a bond servant, it's doulos in the original Greek. It means one who is bonded to another for the good of the other. Just as the son of, Je- just the son of man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why do we do this? Because it reflects who Jesus is. When you serve the world, you serve and live like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for uh, our time together right now. We're so grateful. We're so thankful that you give us such practical teaching and make us think every week that we come how we can be drawn into a closer, deeper relationship with you, that we can matter and that we do matter, God. Thank you that you love us so much. Give us significance, give us purpose, give us direction, God. In all the things we do, help us to think first, Christian, and then second, everything else. It's in your name we pray, amen.